Well, as Bill mentioned in his prayer, this is the last time I'll see you for five Sundays. Next Sunday, I'll come and prepare communion and then drive across town to uh, Cornerstone Christian Fellowship where Owen Carey from New Hampshire, Sid Roberts from Seattle, and I will be ordaining new leaders in that church. That church has been on quite a journey for the last year or so. Wonderful things have been happening. There's great future. And by the way, the med van that we used to have here on Monday night is now there. And they feel greatly called to minister to that neighborhood. They're appointing various individuals as neighborhood chaplains. They're going door-to-door asking people what they can do, mowing lawns for widows, doing many things like that. And the med van will fit exactly in the call that they have to minister to their neighborhood. So it's a blessing to be a part of uh, that process. We've been involved with them now for about a year and a half, helping uh, put things together there. And then uh, we head off to New England. We'll be in New Hampshire. Uh, We'll be in Connecticut. And uh, in Connecticut, there are two churches that have been discussing merging. This church merged a few years ago. Two churches, two congregations came together Owen Carey and I were involved in that process, and now there is a Hispanic church that meets in their building on Sunday afternoons. I'm sure they're discussing a merger with that two, those two churches, or possibly the leadership of the Hispanic church becoming elders of the existing church, and they just join that one instead of a, a merger. So we'll be involved in, in that process somewhat. Uh, In New Hampshire, we'll be involved in the planning committee for the conclave. Gordon will be there, be a part of that. And uh, then other things, you know, I never know really what I'm going to do exactly until I get there. And I just show up uh, knowing generally what we'll be doing. But many times, as Bill was saying, it's just uh, relationships God has given us. Some years ago, in a time of great turmoil, we were involved in One church coming into existence, we've stayed sort of the father figure with that church. Another one a few years ago was about to explode, and Clay Sterrett and uh, Owen and I were involved in helping that one uh, find its way forward. So uh, we have a number of things that happen on this trip, and I do appreciate your prayers. It feels so inadequate for what we do. Uh, many times not knowing the next step. So I ask you to pray for us as we're away. Matthew chapter 3. Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, When he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around Jordan They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, 
he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winning fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This chapter summarizes the ministry of John the Baptist. Of John, Jesus said, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And Jesus also said, recorded in, John chapter 5, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You know, as I think about John the Baptist, I can't get out of my mind Elton John's song, Candle in the Wind. Well, here's a man who at about 30 years of age The word of God came to him. He left the wilderness and began proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. About two years later, he was dead, beheaded by Herod. And yet, while he was here, he shone brightly the light of God, the intensity of God, the fire of God was in his ministry. I found myself meditating a lot on John the Baptist in recent days. And you know, as I thought about this morning, and it seemed it would be God's will for me to talk about John the Baptist, this thought came to me. You know, before many years have passed, I'm going to leave this world. And I am experientially going to enter the world described in Hebrews 12. You have come to Mount Zion 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, spirits of righteous men made perfect. I thought about that. I thought, you know, Jim, before very long you're going to leave here and, and you're going to experience that and you're probably going to meet John. And I don't want John, when I meet him, to say, Jim, why did you say that about me in October? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I thought, Lord, help me get it right today. <laughs> this morning, my hope is that we can accurately portray a little bit about this man, discern some lessons appropriate for us as we think about John, his life, and the example that he set before us. We can't begin to think about the life of John the Baptist if we do not think about his birth. The village in Judea, Judean hill country, we don't know the name of the village, there lived an old priest named Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, both of them aged, maybe almost as old as I am. And as they years went by, they began to realize many things for which they had dreamed just weren't going to happen. They had desired a child because to fully participate in the covenant of Israel, one needed to have generations following them. And now they were old, Elizabeth. Menopause had passed many years before, Zechariah, an old man, and so they had put that hope upon the shelf. It would never be. Also, Zechariah had longed to someday be able to officiate in the temple, and now he was an old man, and that had never happened. And they were growing old together, their dreams put upon the shelf. About a thousand years before Zechariah was born, the Levitical priesthood had grown so large and there were so many priests that it was disorder and, and there was a problem. How do we decide who will officiate in the temple among all these priests? And so David had organized the Levites, the priests, into 24 different orders or courses. One of these was Abijah. Abijah was the eighth of the 24. Zechariah was of that particular order. And so when it, the rotation came about and it was time for the order of Abijah to have a representative in the temple, the question was, which one of the order of Abijah? Because there were usually 850 to 1,000 priests in each order. And so they cast lots. Now, I don't know how they did that. Did they say, okay, we're going to cast lots, and now this village won, and so now the priest village, we cast lots. I know it wasn't like America's Got Talent or American Idol or something like that, but just casting lots. And the old priest, Zechariah, to his joy, received the lot that said, you are the one who has been chosen by God, chosen by Lot, and that's by God, to officiate at lighting the altar of incense, the holy of tasks that one could perform other than the task of the high priest. And so Abijah, the uh, course of Abijah's representative was Zechariah. He entered the 
holy place. You see, the temple had the outer court where people gathered. There was the court of Gentiles in the outer court, and then there was the holy place in which was the table of shewbread, the menorah, the seven-branched candlestick, and the altar of incense. And then there was the veil, and on the other side of the veil was the sanctuary, the holy of holies. Originally, that very holy and sacred room contained the Ark of the Covenant. And above the Ark, there were two angels, seraphim or cherubim, that were facing each other and their wings touched. And beneath that, there was this shining cloud, the holy Shekinah, the very presence of God. And when the high priest entered that room once a year, it was with fear and trembling as he brought the blood of the sacrificed lamb once a year to sprinkle it upon that altar. But 600 years before the birth of Zechariah, the ark had been lost. When the Babylonians conquered the Jews and, and uh, ravaged the temple and carried everything away that was in it, they took the ark. And this is interesting to think about. Because up until that time, Any time the ark was touched inappropriately, for instance, Uriah the Hittite, one time they were, rather Uriah, they were, Uzziah, pardon me, they were carrying the ark and supposed to carry it on poles, you remember, but instead they put it on an ox cart and it was crossing a creek, it tilted and Uzzah reached out to steady it and was stricken dead. And the priest, with fear and trembling, walked into the presence of that ark once a year when at one point the Philistines captured their place that was moved, trouble happened. It seemed that God had actually removed himself from the Ark of the Covenant when the sin of Israel had gotten so bad that God allowed the Babylonians to come and conquer the land and carry away the Ark, evidently unharmed. We have no idea what happened to it. We have no idea where it is. Of course, there's all kinds of wild stories and movies written about it, but we just don't know. And so every year, when the high priest went into the sanctuary where the ark should have been, there was no ark. When Zerubbabel and Nehemiah had rebuilt the temple, they'd placed a stone slab, almost like the headstone of a grave, in memory of something that had been but no longer was. And so the priest sprinkle blood upon a stone slab, but there was no holy Shekinah, no obvious presence of God. That was the temple into which Zechariah came to perform his service. First, he serviced the menorah, the seven-branched candlestick, and then he turned to the altar of incense and prepared to perform that sacred duty. And as the incense was ignited and the aroma began to fill the room, the smoke filled the room, outside the congregation was praying and that uh, rising uh, aroma and cloud of incense was a symbol of the prayers of the people. But as Zechariah began to do that, suddenly the hair rose on the back of his neck His body was covered with goosebumps and he was stricken with fear because to the right side of the altar of incense there was an angel looking him eye 
to I. And the angel said, don't be afraid, I'm Gabriel. I'm the messenger God sends. And you and your wife are going to have a baby. Now, his head really swam over that, you know. We're old folks. We can't have a baby. The angel said, you will. He's going to be very special. From the time of his birth, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not to drink any wine or strong drink. He's going to be the messenger of God to proclaim the coming kingdom of heaven. And you're to name him John. Well, nobody in that family had ever been named John. Well, Zachariah's head was swimming. He said, uh, maybe this is a dream. How do I know? And the angel said, you'll be struck dumb and you'll not be able to speak until the baby is born. Happened like that. He came out of the temple. The crowd was there. They looked at him. They knew something had happened. They could tell by the look on his face. And he tried to talk and he couldn't. And he had to make signs to them. He went back to the Judean, Judean village. He and his aged wife had conjugal relations. Nine months later, the baby boy, John, was born, filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his birth. All the relatives said, oh, we'll name him Zachariah. Mm, no, no, you know, he couldn't talk, but trying to, and gave sign his name is to be John. And then his tongue was loosed, and he spoke a beautiful prophecy about this child and what his future would be. There are two miraculous births associated with Christmas. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. John, born of a couple, past the age of childbirth. And so his life began. We don't know a lot of details about the early years of John. Since his parents were aged when he was born, in all probability, they died when he was quite young, perhaps a teenager. But we do know this. He became a man of the wilderness. He did not live in a village. He lived in the wilderness. He was not a hunter. He was not a farmer. He lived off the land, eating locusts and wild honey. Now, that maybe is strange to us, <laughs> And yet when you read in the Old Testament concerning clean and unclean things that can be eaten, locusts are considered ceremonial clean. So you can eat locusts. I saw a program about some place in Africa on the History Channel a while back. And in that particular area, one of their foods is a stick covered with honey and a bunch of locusts stuck to it. So I get kind of a sucker. You know, you lick the locusts and honey off the stick. Or something like that anyway. So that was his diet. Fasting often. Living off the land. Drinking out of a stream. Not living among people. What was his garment? It was the garment of a poor person really. The common peasant. Camel's hair with a leather belt. And that was it. And then. After 
He was about 30 years of age, six months approximately before Jesus began his ministry. The word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. It's interesting, we can quite accurately uh, determine when John was born. We can determine when his ministry began in Luke chapter 3. Luke very specifically spells out the exact time that his ministry began, about six months prior to Jesus beginning his. But he didn't do anything to try to make it happen. All these prophecies had been given. He saw none of them coming about. But all of these years he lived alone, and his only fellowship was with God. I recently was reading a book. Actually, I read it some years ago. I'm now rereading it, How the Irish Saved Civilization. And in this book is the partial biography of the man we know as St. Patrick, Patricus. Patricus was a member of a very prominent middle-class family in England. And the Irish had these skin-covered boats that weren't very big, and a few people could ride in them. And what they would do, they would go a particular coast at night, and sneak up on a farmhouse and steal the children, often before the parents knew it, take them to Ireland and sell them as slaves. That happened to Patricus. And he was sold as a slave to a man who had a large flock. It reminded me so much of David. And he spent years and years and years, all of his teen years, into early manhood, alone, with nothing but sheep. <laughs> And later as he wrote about this, he said his days were constantly praying, 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 hungry at times, cold at times, but constantly communing with God. Finally, when he was in his late 20s, a grown man, he escaped. <laughs> And a few years later, he came back to Ireland, called of God to evangelize this wild, uncivilized group of people. And you know the story, how Ireland became at least Catholic Christian. We're glad for one reason, because as the civilization of Europe collapsed in Ireland, almost all of the uh, classical literature that we have today from the past was preserved in those Irish monasteries that came about as a result of Patricus, whom we know as St. Patrick. So here was this man all alone, no communication with anyone but God, grew deep in the Lord. He learned to rely on God and not humans. And that was true of John, whom we know as John the Baptist. For 20 years, at least, we would say, 15 maybe, alone in the wilderness with God. He did not live in a village. He lived in the wilderness. And the word of God came to him. And he didn't do anything until that happened. He did not have an ascending spirit. There was no ambition. There was no drive. I have to get out of here and do what these prophecies say. But he was content to abide with God until, as Luke chapter 3 says, the word of God came to him, and he launched forth in his ministry. Now, I must confess something this morning. Usually, I try to be a good homiletician. 
And a good homiletician in prayer comes to a single point or truth that God wants to make in the sermon. And so the sermon is constructed with that proposition stated in a single sentence and everything in the sermon relates to that. And if you are an experienced sermon listener, one thing you want to do is catch that proposition and then you'll understand what the sermon is all about. This morning, I am a poor homiletician. (laughs) I've spent days meditating upon the life of John the Baptist. I have filled one and part of another (laughs) uh, legal pad (laughs) just writing about this man. And yet, the Lord has not revealed to me what the single lesson of this morning is to be. And so I came this morning saying, Lord, I am surrendered to you. I'm your servant. I'm your vessel. Take this where you will. (laughs) So let's see where we go today as we think about John the Baptist, his life, and uh, his message. Let's talk about his life a little bit, the quality the quality of that life. You know, John the Baptist in some ways was a very blessed man in a way most of us aren't. Well, first of all, he had a godly family, didn't he? His mother and father, the Bible says they were righteous in everything. He also had a godly extended family. Now think about this. James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, were his first cousins. His mother and their mother were sisters. And John the Baptist also was a blood relative of Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly how, whether second cousin or third cousin, but still a blood relative. Because in Luke chapter 1, when the angel was talking to Mary, the angel said, your, and the Greek says, sunagase, <laughs> Elizabeth, is in her sixth month. Now, sunagase is... Uh, Greek term that means blood relative, and we so you can't determine what degree. Now, some of your versions of the Bible say cousin, and some say aunt. That's mere speculation, but blood relative. So Mary was a blood relative of Elizabeth, who was John's mother. So John and Jesus were second cousins, third cousins, who knows? But think about that. This when God decided to bring salvation in the world. He didn't just pick a woman, a virgin. He picked a family. Isn't that something to think about? He picked a family. And so John not only had godly parents who even, though they were aged, they surely would have sought to impart to him everything that they could concerning God. But he had this extended family as well, which evidently he didn't really know very well. Because when Jesus came, one account indicates he kind of questions, and then, oh, yeah, that's who you are. But he had this extended family, a godly extended family. He also had something that very few people ever have, and that was this, a clear understanding of his single purpose or existence. 
There was no question in his mind as to why he was alive and why he was upon the earth and what he was supposed to do and be. Very few of us have that, don't we? <laughs> Matter of fact, I have to say, you know, at 81 years of age, I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. Uh, you know, I, I have great health. I have more friends than anybody in the world could imagine. I have a loving family. Uh, I have just, I'm, there's nobody in the world more blessed than I am. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with this. <laughs> you know, what do you do with it? And the only thing I can figure out is do whatever's in front of me. <laughs> Isn't that kind of the way with you? God has called you into a profession? Yes. God calls you into a skill. God calls you into a craft, or at least life moves you that way. And here you are. And what am I supposed to do? And some people who are good carpenters or plumbers or computer programmers or whatever keep thinking, oh, got to be something else. Why? Why not be content as we are? But John had no question in his mind. He knew why he was on the earth. What a blessed thing. <laughs> and you could throw yourself fully into it without any question at all. He also had that other very wonderful blessing that you really don't read about anybody else ever having. Filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his birth. I wonder what that looked like. Think about this. John never performed one miracle. He didn't turn water into wine. He didn't walk on water. He didn't heal any lame man. He didn't heal any blind man. But filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his birth. I think, for me at least, that says let's be real careful in defining what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the way it worked out for John was such anointed preaching <laughs> that people couldn't run from it. Power in his words. Can you imagine what it would be like if you'd be down on the Jordan River and here comes this guy out of the woods and starts carrying on like John did? <laughs> uh, you know, had on a camel hair cloak and a leather thing and all of a sudden start shouting at you repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you'd say quick get the guys in the white coats we've got a crazy man in our midst but it didn't happen because the Holy Spirit was speaking through John and people who heard them did not hear a crazy man but they heard the power of God in his words that's how spirit-filled worked out in that particular situation. Here was a man who was totally given to the reason he was in the earth, totally devoted to that single purpose, a man whom God used in a wonderful way, and then it was time for him to shuffle off the stage, and he did. His purpose had been fulfilled. Think about John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, John preached in Aramaic because that was the language the Jews spoke when he was upon the earth. But when Matthew and Luke, and by the way, you find almost all the information on John in Matthew and Luke. When Matthew and Luke 
wrote about John, and when they recorded his message, the Greek word they chose for repentance is the word metanoeo, which means to change your way of thinking. And John came to a Jewish nation that was not where God wanted it to be. Notice John was not a reformer. He did not come to uh, reform the Jewish nation. He was not a Malachi. Malachi, remember, was reforming the Jewish religion. He said, you're not bringing your tithes, and when you bring a lamb, what you do, you look out your flock and say, that one's blind and lame, I'll never get anything for him, I'll, make, I'll give that one to God. And so Malachi rebuked the people for the manner in which they were practicing their Judaism, and he was saying, shape up and do it right. John was not a reformer. John was a radical. The word radical comes from the Greek word for root. And it has the idea, let's chop off the root and do something different. And that's what John said, the axe is already laid at the root. I want to give you, he said, a new way of thinking. No longer do I want, no longer is it right for you to think that you can be pleasing to God by keeping all the rules the Pharisees have laid on you. Religion won't do it anymore. You can go to the temple and pray all the memorized prayers. You can do all that. But I want to tell you a new way to think because that doesn't cut it with God. Let me give you a new way to think. Change your way of thinking. Empty ritual, not enough. Or as the Jews would say, look, really, we're, we're descended from Abraham. We have all these Old Testament promises. We've got a leg up on heaven. To use contemporary language, John said baloney. Why, if God wanted to, he could raise up children to Abraham a bunch of these stones. That doesn't give you any edge. Change your way of thinking. It's interesting as you read his sermon, it's far different from what the Jews thought was going to happen when Elijah came as the forerunner of the Messiah. They thought he would come and Messiah would come and they'd have this wonderful kingdom. But John's message was one of judgment. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hands. And he'll gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he's going to put in unquenchable fire. It was a message of judgment that he brought, rather than a glorious thing, God's going to elevate the Jews. Remember when Jesus lamented over Jerusalem? Well, let me say this. Sometimes we quote John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. And we can blithely repeat that and forget about the fact that Jesus' teaching is full 
of comments about judgment. Some have said, and I've never checked this out, that Jesus said more about hell than he did heaven. Now, I've never taken the time to count, and I've learned to not take what people say unless I check it out. And yet you can't deny the fact that Jesus continually spoke about judgment. It's there. And so when Jesus passed around the side of the Mount of Olives and beheld Jerusalem and stopped in the triumphal entry and began to weep, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest those that have been sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thee under my wings, and yet you would not. Henceforth your house is left unto you desolate. And he spoke of the destruction that was going to take place 40 years later when the Romans destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will gather his weak wheat into the barn but the chaff he will cast into unquenchable fire. But there also was that glorious element of hope. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John himself didn't fully understand what that meant. It's like Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, now these prophets in the past gave all these prophecies and they spoke about the salvation and they didn't understand it. They kept trying to look into it and study their own words. And he said, even the angels looked into it. And so when John said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he didn't really know what that kingdom was. And it sure wasn't what he expected because he later asked Jesus, when Jesus was still just healing people and not routing the Romans. Are you the one we look for or somebody else? But here's the lesson of John. He faithfully preached what God gave him even though he didn't understand it. He did not flinch from faithfulness to being obedient to the Lord. Well, you know what? <laughs> this could be a five-sermon series. <laughs> well, not five Sundays in a row. But we do need, I think, to come to a close. So much to ponder. And I want to urge you to do this. Take time to read about the life of this man. Prayerfully read about it before God. There's so much, I think, to be said. The example, the model... Unusual creature, unusual servant, and yet so much is an example before us. Thank you, Lord, through Jesus. Amen.